0: Welcome back. This is On the Record on News Talk. It's Gavin Riley with you until one o'clock this afternoon. Now, time for another edition of Hidden Histories.
1: Good evening. It is with deep sadness that you and I, Irishmen and women of goodwill, have learned of the tragic events which have been taking place in Derry and elsewhere in the north in recent days.
0: Now that was 50 years ago uh, this year when the Taoiseach at the time Jack Lynch gave what can only be described as an extraordinary televised speech in which he proclaimed that the Irish government could no longer stand by and see innocent people injured and perhaps worse against the backdrop of the worsening situation in the north. Now his government even drew up contingency plans for a possible incursion into the north, a possible invasion known as Exercise Armageddon. But was it ever really going to be put into action and what effect would Irish soldiers on the streets of Derry or Newry have had on the international stage well Donald Fallon is here to tell us all about it good afternoon good Donald. to be here good um, to be here we all think of the 1960s as you know Sweden 60s mm. and student protest and that it was an uplifting time and Brian Adams uh, yeah. we, we often actually forget that in a in a par- part of this island the late 1960s were a pretty desperate time
2: very much so Europe had its 1968 you know on the streets of Paris and the like and in the north of Ireland it was 1969 and that for me is the inevitable eruption of Northern Ireland and it began literally on the first day of the year I mean the first of January 1969, a civil rights march from Belfast to Derry, organized by People's Democracy, was repeatedly attacked on the way by hostile mobs, and that went on for several days. So like from the very beginning, from day one of 1969, this was a year of crisis uh, in the North. And as often happens in a crisis, part of the reason for it was political mismanagement. The Prime Minister, Captain Terence O'Neill, called it very, very badly. And O'Neill is kind of viewed now very kindly by historians as a kind of reformer, as someone that tried to make the northern state work for everyone. Mm. But his language at the beginning of 1969 was absolutely appalling. You know, he told the press, enough is enough. We've heard sufficient for now about civil rights. Let us hear a little about civic responsibility for it's a short step from the throwing of paving stones to the laying of tombstones. And I, for one, can think of no cause in Ulster today, which will be advanced by the death of a single Ulster man. So this year, 1969, began with enormous political tension uh, in the north of Ireland.
0: Um, we often, nowadays, 50 years on, we hear of difficulty in Northern Ireland and Westminster tends to turn a blind eye or gets yes. a bit
2: glazed over. Was yes. that the case back well, in 1969? The North is very much on everyone's mind in Westminster these days because of the power of the, of, of, of the DUP at the moment. And in 1969, as the crisis in the North was escalating, Stormont, or, pardon me, Westminster mm. uh, was at the centre of it again because you got the election in April that year of a 21-year-old, which was a 21-year-old woman, unprecedented, Bernadette Devlin, now Bernadette McAliskey, uh, elected as a member of Parliament. The youngest female parliamentarian in the history of that institution. Eventually that mantle was handed over yeah. to uh, Mary Black of the SNP who's in there at, at the moment. But one of her slogans was I will take my seat and fight for your rights. And that was a very definitive break you know, with the long-standing Republican orthodoxy and Sinn Féin still have that orthodoxy when it came to abstentionism and, and not going to, to Westminster. So you, you have the election of this 21-year-old firebrand civil rights voice into Parliament and that should have dominated the news really but in that very same week there was the deployment of British troops onto the streets of the north Um, Soldiers were at first though uh, you know not just sort of shunned or anything but actually people welcomed their presence This is mad I mean I, I always believed growing up this was something of an urban myth but it's no urban myth whatsoever you know when young English soldiers arrive onto the streets of the north they're welcomed by the nationalist population because they're under siege you know from hostile mobs and there's countless images if you go looking for them and there's archive footage and it doesn't lie there's tea and there's cake in abundance, you know, not least in nationalist areas like the Falls Road. And the idea of the British Army welcomed onto the streets of the Falls Road by nationalist women with cups of tea. It's pretty peculiar to so us. Was it
0: because they thought that they were going to come in and reinforce human rights, or why exactly were they so I think they felt might?
2: that I mean the, the, the level of sectarian violence and sectarian rioting against the nationalist population was so great that they just saw the British Army as a, a bulkwork, a barrier, if you will, okay. between between two factions. But we read history backwards, you know, we know everything that came later, Bloody Sunday and the like. No one knew of that at the time and the accounts of Northern Ireland in 1969 from a British army perspective they're now kind of they're difficult to believe actually when you read them peter we don't have a surname for this man but he was a member of the royal highland fusiliers sent to armagh and his memories of the north in 69 are just mad he says we took part in church parades and on Sundays we'd go to church and the Catholic lads to chapel dressed in full uniform. The regiment was split between Armagh, Dungannon and Enniskillen and we used to go regularly to dances in Dungannon. We weren't aware of Protestant and Catholic areas or pubs then and I don't really know if these existed. We all thought that the troubles in Northern Ireland would soon be over. The place seemed that peaceful. The whole tour was a bit like a holiday really. <laughs> I mean, given the course of Northern Irish history, it's extraordinary that in 1969 that's how a British soldier on the ground felt. Yeah, obviously didn't stay much like a holiday. They feeling for very long though No, things changed very quickly and I think there was that hope in the nationalist ghettos and they were ghettos you know, some of the most impoverished areas in Britain and Ireland in the early days of 69 and that kind of hope remained into the summer and the British did some things that inspired hope in nationalist communities now the British Lieutenant General Ian Freeland he took charge of security matters in Ulster and basically stripped away power from Stormont and, and the RUC both of which were kind of deeply distrusted quite rightly uh, by the nationalist population but you know Feelings do change quickly. And there's a lovely memoir of going up on the Falls Road. One local resident says... They were first met with cups of tea and biscuits, but a change of mind came quickly. The people's attitude changed with the speed of light. And, you know. But the following year, you had running street battles on the very same streets that these young soldiers from yeah. Liverpool and Manchester and Norwich and Glasgow had been welcomed onto earlier on in it the year. It is astonishing just how quickly it all changes. Um,
0: you mentioned that this all broke out quite literally on the 1st of January, the, the army land not long afterwards, but the violence then reaches its pinnacle that summer.
2: A- that August. August 1969 is absolutely disastrous. And between the 12th and the 17th of August... The conflict and the the, the the province of Ulster is on mm. fire. And in Derry, you get the Battle of the Bogside, you know, barricades are out onto the streets. But Derry's unique, I suppose, in that Derry has a, a a nationalist majority. So it's really the nationalist community versus the security forces. Other places, you get ugly scenes that are very sectarian. So you get the interface in Belfast between the Shankill Road and the Falls Road. Absolute mayhem. Have you ever visited Belfast? walk down the Falls Road... Comgal School on the Falls Road Mm. that building tells its own story I mean it still has the bullet marks from those mad days and that area was defended by a few dozen IRA men with one Thompson submachine gun one Sten machine gun one Leonfield rifle and six handguns you know on the roof of that school trying to keep a mob from the Shankill Road away from them and it was mayhem I mean there was innocent lives lost Patrick Rooney a nine year old child is killed by machine gun fire as he lies in bed in the Divis Flats the first child fatality of the Troubles so by August of 69 the conflict is I mean the the province is on fire Mm. and no one in the south is able to ignore it Uh, which then puts the Irish
0: government in a hard place because you have a government down in Dublin led by Jack Lynch at the time the Irish state at the time makes a territorial claim to Northern yes. Ireland. It argues that this is its own land. So you have a government in Dublin which is sort of powerless to act
2: really. Article 2 and 3 is still there in, in bunrock and and in the constitution. So what can an Irish government do? And for, for Jack Lynch really and the government more broadly, 1969 was a really, really terrifying spectacle. And Brian Hanley, the historian, he wrote his beautiful recent book on the impact of the Northern conflict on Southern Irish life and politics. And he details kind of how confused Lynch and the government around him were by what was happening in the North. They didn't really know what to do. Mm. And early in 1969, he actually, like, this is mad to think this, the Taoiseach, sits down with the Director General of RTE and the Deputy Head of News from RTE and the editors of some of the leading newspapers and he expresses his concern to them at increasing Republican activity and a resurgent IRA and he asks them not to give any press attention to the IRA, not to interview these people. But then when the violence erupts in August, the sectarian violence against the nationalist community in the North, the public line had to
0: change. And obviously then that blind eye tactic couldn't be uh, withheld any longer. Um, here is a little bit more from that speech that we played a little bit of start from Jack Lynch. This is the closing section.
1: We have also asked the British government to see to it that police attacks on the people of Derry should cease immediately. Very many people have been injured, and some of them seriously. We know that many of these do not wish to be treated in six county hospitals. We have therefore directed the Irish Army authorities to have field hospitals established in County Donegal, adjacent to Derry and at other points along the border where they may be necessary. Recognising, however, that the reunification of the National Territory can provide the only permanent solution for the problem, it is our intention to request the British Government to enter into early negotiations with the Irish Government to review the present constitutional position of the six counties of Northern Ireland. These measures which I have outlined to you seem to the government to be those most immediately and urgently necessary. All men and women of goodwill will hope and pray that the present deplorable and distressing situation will not further deteriorate, but that it will soon be ended, firstly, by the granting of full equality of citizenship to every man and woman in the 6 County area, regardless of class, Creed or political persuasion and eventually by the restoration of the historic unity of our country.
0: Jack Lynch speaking in nineteen sixty nine. I, I don't know whether it's the just the scratchy audio quality or any of that, yeah. but it actually it feels like a wartime speech. It does and
2: actually often people draw comparisons between that and Eamon de Valera's famous rebuttal of yes. Winston Churchill yeah. after the Second World War. And perhaps it is the most important speech by a Taoiseach. Uh, since De Valera and Churchill but I mean that was delivered on television that was the difference you know Dev went on the radio Lynch went on TV and TV was a very new phenomenon in 1960s Ireland mm. and I think kind of added to the sense of it and it panicked people you know in the northern state in particular and unionists said look we want thousands of police reservists on the border uh, in, cra- in case they come over and Ian Paisley refers in public he says that Lynch is behaving like like Adolf Hitler and Faulkner who's a government member and a Lynch supporter in his memoir he actually says no Lynch hit the right note perfectly mm. he says Some now find part of the final version of that speech to be less than diplomatic, but it must be remembered that it was a very emotive time and nobody raised any objections. So Lynch, against the backdrop of this total chaos, has gone to the Irish army Mm. and has asked them to draw up contingency plans for a potential invasion of the North, exercise Armageddon. And that leaves the question, what's he playing at? Because it's a time when... Both Ireland and her next door neighbour were heading towards the European Economic Community, the EEC. And the invasion of a kind of friendly member state by us would have played pretty badly for that. But undoubtedly, I think the primary logic of the Irish army going north would have been the force of reaction from the United Nations. And it would have led to the deployment of a peacekeeping
0: force. It is striking when you see all of that, that this wasn't just a a paper plan, that this was something that was genuinely being, being entertained at the highest levels. What did actually happen then, if not invasion?
2: All that the studies revealed, I mean, when when, when Lynch sent them to sit down and, and, and look at this in detail, was how under-resourced the state forces were for any such intervention. They couldn't do it. But the document did suggest Derry, Straban, Enniskillen and Newry as potentially most fitting for infantry operations if we went over the border and I suppose there are two reasons for that one demographics you know nationalist majorities mm. and also proximity but what's kind of mad is the document also identifies the BBC studios in Belfast as a primary target for destruction along with Belfast airport docks and main industries and it says that due to their distance from the border any any military operations against these targets should preferably be off of the unconventional type so <laughs> unconventional extraordinary lovely. but this is Essentially, the Irish defence forces, the Irish state, a guide to guerrilla warfare mm. in the north. Absolutely extraordinary. It never happened. Yeah. But what did happen was the establishment of field hospitals, as Lynch said in that clip, you know, in Donegal... Uh, and the like and that played well for Lynch it played well with the, the Fianna Fáil Republican base you know that he was seen to be doing something he later admitted though in private he said we'd no intention of moving in we didn't have the men or equipment even if we had the desire
0: Yeah um, it's it's striking just when you talk about the BBC studios they always say that if you're ever trying to mount a coup that the first means that you have to try and get hold of is, is the the means of transmission because once you can communicate half the battle is already won Well today it'd be Twitter you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> Send a coup to California um, Now it was ridiculed by some at the Time, but actually, all of what you've summarised there, Jack Lynch actually did make a real impact. He did, and the, the, the great, crisis.
2: the great nationalist song of the day up in the North when Jack Lynch came out from Dublin, and he had ten thousand men. He marched them to the border, and then he marched them home again. <laughs> like but, the, you know, the Grand old Duke of Cork. <laughs> <laughs> the release of the government plans. You know, we now know that there was little to laugh at in this crisis, mm. in all sincerity, and. You know things would worsen uh, in subsequent years and it's important to say Lynch would not be the last Taoiseach to find his political career occasionally dominated uh, by events on the other side of the border but this year you know 2019 there's a lot of important 50 year anniversaries mm. when it comes to the North and this this is one of them exercise Armageddon
0: it's a good reminder of just exactly what is at stake when, when people are so uh, unclear as to what, what the North holds and what sort oh, of infrastructure might be absolutely. between us and them. Uh, Donald thank you as ever great stuff uh, Donald Fallon is the author of the Come Here To Me blog and books volume 2 is in all good bookshops now that is it for me for today Off the Ball is up next Uh, thank you to Stephen Jordan the producer Roisin Davis was on research Peter Malloy and Jojo Cardoza were on sound to play us out um, a little bit of coverage in the papers today about Peter Tork who passed away during the week at the age of 77 he was the bass guitarist with the Monkees let's go with this one this really showcases exactly what he could do on the bass guitar Uh, I'm Gavin Riley thank you very much for listening enjoy the rest of your Sunday I'm in the river with a saturated liver and I wish I could forgive it, But I do believe she meant it when she told me to forget it And I bet she will forget it when you find me in the morning Wet and drowned, and the road gets round I'm going down, I'm going down I'm coming up for air hey, with pretty stuff under there Like I said, I didn't
2: care, but I forgot to leave a note And it's so hard to stay afloat, so can without a boat, And I knew I should have taken off my shoes It's front Page News I had another drink It wouldn't be the so hot It's like I should have t-
0: Sleepy welcome not She told me to forget it nice I should have taken her advice I only